Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will include selected sessions from the 19th International Workshop on Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma, which was held in Barcelona, Spain. In this podcast, you will hear from experts, Catherine Bollard, Jeremy Abramson, Maxima Monkin, and Barbara Salvordu, who discuss the emerging use of T-cell therapies in non-Hodgkin lymphoma and highlights findings from recent clinical trials. Hi, I'm Kath Bollard, and I'm here at the uh, IWNHL meeting here in Barcelona in 2022. And we have just finished a very exciting T-cell therapy session, and we have three of the speakers from that session here. Um, and we're going to go straight to Jeremy Abramson, who uh, gave a great overview of the real-world experience of CD19 CAR T-cells. And so, Jeremy, you know, can you give our audience the highlights of what you think uh, the takeaway from uh, from your very comprehensive talk? Sure, I'd love to. Thanks, Kath. You know, the the longer we've had these products available in the clinic, the more experience we're getting uh, at treating patients, both who would have been eligible for the pivotal trials that garnered the approvals and those who would not be. And it's remarkable when you look across these real-world studies that half or more of patients being treated with a CD19-directed CAR T-cell for large B-cell lymphoma wouldn't have even been eligible for the Zuma-1 uh, or Juliet trials. Um, currently, the real-world data we have are really just for those two products, uh, for the axicabdigene psilolusal and tisagenleclusal. Lysacel was too recently FDA approved. We don't have those real-world data yet. So one of the big messages is that we can treat a broader population of patients than we're allowed through the strict eligibility criteria. We can treat patients who are older. We can treat patients with moderate medical comorbidities, including moderate renal insufficiency as long as the fludarabine is dose reduced, moderate cardiac and hepatic comorbidities, ECOC performance status of two may be associated with an inferior outcome, but those patients can still have durable responses. Other things that keep people out of clinical trials, like other second malignancies, even if they're in remission, a recent blood clot, etc. all of these patients have been studied in real world settings and can do very well. The other thing we're seeing, particularly with AxiCell, which induces a high rate of CRS and neurotoxicity, is there's a suggestion that the longer these products are out, the lower the risk of severe cytokine release syndrome. And I think that reflects that in the pivotal trials, we were our hands were tied as far as when we could use tocilizumab and corticosteroids. And we have more data now that earlier use of these rescue medications can reduce the risk of severe cytokine release syndrome. Less so perhaps with severe neurotoxicity, but I think that's true with, with severe cytokine release syndrome. Uh, and so I think that says that we're actually learning from our experience and probably doing better because these studies do show higher rates of use of rescue medications than in the pivotal trials. I think the other thing that more recent real-world analyses are starting to look at is comparative safety and efficacy between Tysacel and AxiCell. These, of course, are different products in large B-cell lymphoma. They both target CD19. They have different co-stimulation domains. They have different transmembrane domains. They have different doses, and they have different lymphodepleting chemotherapy. So they're really quite different treatments. And across the real-world data, we see an interesting uh, theme emerge. 
One is that AxiCell with the CD28 co-stim domain certainly is a more toxic product. The vast majority of patients develop cytokine release syndrome. Most patients develop neurologic toxicity. Severe CRS now appears to be less than 10%. Severe neurotoxicity can be in the range of a third of patients, which is a high number. Um, and about a third of patients end up being transferred to the ICU. So AxiCell is a toxic product, though clearly manageable in most cases. Tysacel, on the other hand, as reflected in the pivotal Juliet trial, has much lower rates of any grade CRS, much lower rates of any grade neurotoxicity, and very low rates of both severe uh, neurotoxicity and severe CRS. So it's clearly a safer product than AxiCell. And we're also seeing that reflected in prescribing patterns. Tysacel appears to be giving more to elderly and frail patients, whereas AxiCell seems to be preferred in younger patients and patients with high-risk features in their large cell lymphoma, perhaps getting to how providers view the efficacy of these drugs. And though these drugs have never been compared head-to-head, -head, uh, we do have some recent comparative data from both Spain and in the United States that have looked at patients who've received commercial AxiCell and commercial Tysacel. And multiple retrospective studies now have looked at them in a, in a matched, compared, uh, uh, multivariable analysis and found that AxiCell is associated with an improved progression-free survival uh, relative to Tysacel uh, and uh, maybe improved uh, overall survival uh, in some of the real-world analyses. So I think in aggregate, uh, I'd say uh, that Tysacel appears to be less toxic, but unfortunately it may be less effective, and that has to inform how we pick a product for our patients. So just to play a bit of devil's advocate there, you know, I think you showed very compellingly that Tysacel is safer. Um, but you also convinced me that we're prescribing based on that information. And so is it that those patients that you're prescribing Tysacel to are your worst prognosis players anyway? And it, so do, we do, we, I am assuming we do, can't drill into that level with the real world data. So I think that would be, and I have no financial conflicts of interest with either any of the companies I should just say. Yeah, we certainly cannot be definitive, Kath. You're absolutely right. The risk factors I think go both ways. AxiCell tends to be preferred in patients with high LDH uh, as well as primary refractory disease. Those are adverse outcomes, not favorable outcomes. Um, you know, uh, and so one expect that might make AxiCell patients look like they do a bit worse. Tysacel is given more to older patients, but interestingly, AxiCell has, on a recent analysis, uh, had more patients with high medical comorbidities. Ultimately, on the real-world studies, they've done multivariable analyses where they adjust for the low-hanging fruit, age, refractoriness, comorbidities, but they can't adjust for everything since patients are famously multivariable on multiple levels. And so nothing short of a head-to-head -head prospective trial will answer it, would answer these questions. I doubt we're gonna see that between these products. I doubt we're gonna see that as well. And next year when you come back, you might have some lysocell data, who knows? So, I'm hoping so. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so after we uh, had the state of the nation with the real world CD19 card data, 
Tanga. Uh, we then heard from David Maloney, who talked about uh, where they're going with the CD19 uh, T-cell products, next generation, including humanization of the car and, and off-the-shelf uh, uh, approaches. And we also heard um, from a speaker, from uh, also from Seattle, who was talking about uh, quite promising data with the CD20 uh, car, which is now going to advanced phase trials. So on that theme of moving beyond CD19, um, we then uh, heard from uh, Barbara Savoldo, who is here with us and talked about um, her CD30 car T-cell program. And um, can you provide us with a um, your talking points, uh, take home yes, yeah. points for us? Thank yes. you, Kat, obviously. So we're very excited that we're moving beyond the Hodgkin lymphoma. You know that car CD30, we tested that in Hodgkin lymphoma. We'd very promising results and so we're ready to move to different diseases and you know the next uh, you know patient population that we want to target is obviously CD30 positive T-cell lymphoma they are not all of them positive but you know CD30 is expressed in a subset and those uh, you know have been starting to be receiving CD30 CAR T-cells the results are not as effective or as uh, you know, great as uh, um, Hodgkin lymphoma, but I think that we're teasing out the, the issues, and some are related to you know the um, aggressiveness of the disease uh, that obviously um, has to be tailored with. The, so we need to tailor the production to the aggressiveness of the disease. But certainly, um, you know, we're seeing. Uh, durable responses in those that achieve complete response. So those are durable and that is particularly encouraging. And so what we're looking now is, you know, how we can predict the patient, who are the patient that will respond right away. And so this is uh, ongoing. Um, one of the aspects that we've also started looking at is actually trafficking. So we know that uh, it's important for T-cell to look for their tumor before they can uh, kill it. And so uh, one of the, um, a good excuse for CD30 is to co-express a chemokine receptor that will help uh, them drive in the right place. Obviously we've done this for Hodgkin lymphoma and now we're um, you know, transferring this uh, similar approach to cutaneous T-cell lymphoma because they have in common this uh, TARC production and TARC uh, um, has a cognate receptor, which is CCR4, and that's what we've expressed with the CAR T-cell. And this is really remarkable, uh, not only in a Hodgkin, but we started, now that we're reaching the highest dose, uh, uh, we're seeing some responses also in uh, uh, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And so there are nice uh, pictures for, you know, this responding patient uh, that are impressive. And so there's uh, still time to go and still we need to reach the highest dose level, but I think it looks pretty promising. So. Yeah, I agree. It, uh, it looks really promising. And I think, you know, we had a T-cell lymphoma session this morning where we heard of a different CAR T-cell approach for uh, T-cell lymphomas. And they're having challenges with persistence yeah. in vivo of the T-cells. And and certainly, I think, you know, the your response rates looks really encouraging, knowing that your T-cells are also persisting, correct? Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, it's less. So the, the talk that we heard this morning was more broadly applicable because it would be uh, for every single T-cell lymphoma. CD30 is just a subset, but I think that providing a uh, therapy that is safe and effective, uh, even if it's a small cohort, uh, in a small cohort, is still you know, something that we should pursue.
for a patient. I agree, I agree. And on that note, we'll then uh, end with uh, Dr. Maxima Momkin, and he talked about this, his CD5 uh, T-cell program, also uh, for T-cell malignancies. So, Max, over to you. Yes, thanks, Kath. So, you know, developing CAR T-cells for T-cell malignancy is famously difficult because of all these limitations and T-cell targeting and fratricide and preservation of normal T-cell compartment. And so, particularly when you're targeting antigens like CD5, which are broadly expressed on T-cells and malignant T-cells across various subtypes of T-cell lymphoma and ALL, there's always this concern that the CAR T-cells would kill each other and they will also induce T-cell aplasia. But what, what was interesting is that we developed a CAR that allowed these T-cells to escape fratricide from self-killing by very efficiently degrading CD5 very quickly on themselves. And that is a process that's driven by CAR engagement. And so as a result, they sort of lost the target antigen and they expanded very nicely automatically without having to do any CRISPRing or any other manipulations with it. This is pretty much unique to CD5. We don't really see the same thing when we with other targets. We have to do some active interventions there. But CD5 has this property where it's intrinsic, intrinsically um, resistant to uh, fratricide. And so that allowed us to move it to a phase one clinical trial. And uh, we saw also, going back to the previous point, we saw a nice expansion persistence of the cells. And uh, these, these cells work fairly well in T-cell lymphoma induced um, about 44% overall response and including some CRs and um, including long-term responses as well. So those, those were durable particularly with products that were manufactured with a shortened method where we sort of limit the duration of expansion of these CAR T cells. But the problem is this approach didn't really work well for patients with lymphoblastic disease, the TALL, and T cell lymphoblastic lymphoma. And, um, and so we, we started thinking, what is wrong there? Why it works in, in T cell lymphoma and not in ALL? And we realized that this very process of you know, evasion of fratricide essentially triggers uh, car, continuous CAR signaling as it engages CD5 on these T cells. And that CAR signaling leads to progressive differentiation to a short-lived uh, population of vector cells, which are fantastic at killing, but not so good at persisting. And so we thought, what if we you know, just mute the CAR signaling with pharmacologic inhibitors, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors? And we found a particular combination of ibrutinib and lacetinib uh, did the job essentially just completely you know blocked car signaling and preserved these beneficial T cell populations and uh, we treated um, uh, patients with this uh, the new products and we saw a remarkable uh, you know improvement in in persistence and we also implemented manufacturing of car T cells from healthy donors for patients who relapse postella transplants from their previous stem cell donor and uh, we also uh, amended our protocol of that, and we saw out of six patients now, four achieved complete remissions, which is you know, great compared to one transient CR out of eight patients in, with the previous protocol. So again, the, the patient number is very limited, but um, you know, the, the, the clinical team and the, the trial is led by Lakisa Hill and Rain Rouse, it's Houston Methodist and TCH, I should have mentioned this in the beginning but they are quite uh, encouraged by these responses and so we hope to expand to a larger patient population and hopefully it pans out. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's really encouraging. You know, I mean, I think the car T-cell field has struggled a bit because people think it can't go beyond CD19 to that sort of response rate. And so I think the work that both of you are doing uh, in that, you know, outside of the CD19 car T-cell space is so important. And so I know you didn't really talk about it, Max, but do you want to just briefly talk about where you're going also with um, T-cell ALL um, with the CD7 car? program yeah. yes thanks Kath um, so it's it's always great to target more than one antigen as we've learned in B cell malignancies and so CD5 is very well expressed in, in T cell lymphoma and in in ALL but CD7 is really screaming at you in ALL It's so bright and it's a fantastic target in T cell ALL so we've developed a, a new approach that should be published soon uh, with where we can m generate CD7 CAR T cells without having to in produce any manipulations by using the same tyrosine kinase inhibitors to inhibit fratricide, which otherwise would, would completely destroy them. And then we've moved that to a phase one trial that is currently ongoing, and we've treated uh, several patients with very, very encouraging responses, including one patient with, with T cell lymphoma who went into CR. Again, we are at the early stages of that, but, but it looks promising. So, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, eat my words later, but I am. I'm really, you know, encouraged by the progress that collectively we made in the field, and, you know, in the U.S. and abroad, and I think uh, I'm optimistic that T cell malignancies will actually be tackled very soon with various approaches that uh, collectively we, as a field. Mm -hmm are developing, so tell us No, I think it's really exciting. And, you know, I ended the session talking about the off-the-shelf EBV uh, T-cells and, and actually tantalizingly sort of said at the end, you know, there are potential uh, to combine with a CAR strategy and use them as an off-the-shelf CAR approach. And I think, you know, the field is moving so fast. And I think if the four of us get together next year, we'll have completely different data to show and um, that's why this field is so you know amazing <laughs> so on that note <laughs> i would uh, like you to thank you all for coming here to uh, spain and to giving your talks it really was a a fantastic spe uh, session i felt very energized and i think the audience did too so thank you very much thank you, <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbee. Until next time.